Welcome to the Slightly Evil Podcast, where we aim to arm you with non-obvious points of view on how to improve diversity and inclusion in your company. I'm your host, Petar Vujosevic. Today our guest is the anthropologist Grant McCracken. Grant is returning to build on a topic we touched upon in our first podcast. This topic is the need for companies to create a common language and common structures to build well-functioning coalitions of increased diversity talent in their company. Welcome back to the Slightly Evil Podcast, Grant. Can I just start off with the first question that you know that I have? Like I said, in the last podcast, you mentioned that Again, you can correct me if I misparaphrase you that the corporate environment was always the one place where, you know, a, a fragmented America could come together and, and unite around common goals. Right. What's been the development since, you know, the 1980s to now that no longer it holds true that corporate America is that one place where everybody can come together? Right. It's a delicate question, isn't it? On the one hand, the corporation has got better at multiplicity and has begun to define itself more broadly and to let in heterogeneity and to understand that its success depends upon being multiple and heterogeneous. So, you know, that's something we all want to see happen and it's something that's good for the corporation. The real question here is whether that new multiplicity turns out to create a kind of Tower of Babel where these diverse groups now, yes, they coexist in the same organization, but no, they don't really make contact with one another. And so we've now created a problem that uh, an organization that wants to get anything done in the world can endure. So um, there's always been a problem with communication in the organization. And we know this from you know, mergers and acquisitions and the kinds of things that happen in gigantic corporations like, you know, General Electric or GE, as it's usually called, that in fact, they end up being places of tremendous, almost every act of communication is kind of haunted by the possibility that people will be using different terms and unaware of the fact that they're using different terms. So we have two levels of the problem. In the first case, there's always been a difficulty communicating, and now we've increased that difficulty because we've increased the cultural heterogeneity of people in the corporation. So what do we do? I think one of the things we could think about doing is creating a lingua franca, and that means sending in I was going to say send in the anthropologist, but for crying out loud, it doesn't need to be anthropologists who take on the problem. As an anthropologist, I'll talk about this in an anthropological way, but but I mean to be ecumenical in my approach. So the notion here is to do a kind of, what shall we call it, a kind of x-ray of the discourse that goes on in an organization and just to sit with people and get them to describe who they are and what they think they're doing and what they think the business is about and recent cases in which things have gone well or things have gone badly. And then you start to, in that anthropological, but not just anthropological way, you begin to map all of that language and you get to see the meanings that are in play for this individual. And you begin to dig down into the assumptions they're making. What's interesting about this second piece of it is that often you're now looking at assumptions the individual doesn't know they're making. 
right? They're just, this is what culture does for all of us. It supplies us with a set of meanings and a set of assumptions. And very often we don't know we're making these assumptions. And that's precisely why it's sometimes so hard for us to change. We can change some of the terms we use to talk about the world, but we can't see the assumptions we're making. And so we're much less skillful at uprooting those assumptions and replacing them with new assumptions. But that's our job here, right? Is to create this kind of lingua franca so that we capture the the grammar, if you want, of discourse for any individual in some part of the organization and then take it to another part of the organization and say, as any anthropologist would, this is what she means. This is the language she will use to talk about the organization and what it's doing. And this is the language she will use. And this is what she means when she uses this language. These are the things she knows she means. And these are the assumptions she's smuggling into the discussion. And so if and when you're talking to her or working with her, you now have a lingua franca uh, or can begin to build a shared language that says, okay, so now that we're working on this common project, I understand that when you say X, you mean one thing. And when I say X, I mean something quite different. Or, and we begin to see, to find that common language. Can I ask... When you talk about, you know, uncovering this grammar, are we talking about a effort that is at an individual level? Or are we talking about some kind of a group level within the company? Yeah, I think it's more, there'll be lots of individual eccentricity, but generally speaking, we're talking about a set of terms and assumptions and logics that are shared by, let's say, all the engineers, for instance, and often you'll hear people say this in an organization. They'll say, oh, the engineers, you leave them alone for a moment in the room and they start building a machine. You know, and we're designers. We need them to think about uh, not what the machine can do, but what the consumer wants. So anyhow, uh, yes, it's often these little languages that are contained in the organization exist for particular functions and the groups that do those functions. And I'm going to now date myself a little bit because you use the term, you know, multiplicity. And what immediately came to my mind was uh, the movie with Michael Keaton. Right. Yeah, absolutely. But that seems like an analogy for what we're seeing in corporations, right? The more heterogenic it becomes, the less, you know, well-functioning, almost like, you know, the copy of the copy of the copy is actually working. <laughs> right. Yeah, in fact, I used a slide of that movie and I'm teaching this culture camp and I talk about multiplicity and I go through popular culture and you can really see American, not just American, popular culture struggling with this idea of multiplicity and people are making films about it and they're making, uh, telling stories about it and they're kind of working with it because it's so interesting and it departs so much from the conventions of selfhood and organization that existed after World War II. So it's really a kind of, uh, it's a, a passionate interest for, for our culture, I think, is how do you make it work? You know, the old corporation used to say, you hang your selfhood on a hook beside the door when you come in to work every morning. And we don't care that you're a champion bowler, or we don't care that you're a passionate folk singer, or we don't care about any of that stuff, really. You, we just want you to be one 
quite limited person when you come to work. Now we're beginning to understand that actually all of that stuff is quite interesting and useful for the corporation as it tries to set a, a, solve a whole set of problems, not least of which is you know the new emphasis on creativity and innovation. It's very useful to know that we have somebody in the building who's a passionate folk singer and who can kind of give us that almost instantaneous glimpse into some piece of the creativity taking place in our culture. You bring up a very interesting point there, which is one that I'm actually, you know, I'm struggling with, with grasping because you mentioned something really interesting, right? As an anthropologist, you're looking to make conscious some of these unconscious, you know, values and experiences that, that people bring to an environment. If we talk about, you know, the corporation. Right. You know, we're also now realizing that there is a lot of value to not hanging yourself right at the hook and but bringing yourself into the corporation right exactly what i'm struggling with to understand is that when you look at you know the productivity or you know the innovation that happened let's say post the second world war where it was huge right i mean if you take things like the space program and all those initiatives and yet people somehow were able to be innovative and creative while not consciously bringing their complete self into the company. And now we're saying it, it should be consciously bringing yourself in. Like how did, how did that switch come from, you know, let's just keep it unconscious or subconscious and it'll, it'll work out for itself to now making it a, a visible point of differentiation or even pride. Yeah, it's a great point. And the answer would, will have to be more complicated than I can make it here. But let's just start for starters. I remember the first time I went to IBM, I walked into one of their buildings and in, onto a floor that contained hundreds of desks, places for engineers to work. And literally, it was all white on white on white on white. There were no kinds of variations in color. Nobody had been allowed to put up any kinds of like personal things in their cubicle. They were all dressed in those white drip dry shirts. It was astounding how kind of monolithic it was. And you think about, you know, how did all the, as you properly say, the tremendous creativity that happened after World War II, how did this group so completely confined and effectively boxed by this environment, how did they come up with innovation upon innovation? And I think part of the answer is that what they were building in that case were those huge computers that would take up sometimes an entire floor of a building or certainly, you know, an entire, they weren't building personal computing. They were building an industrial computing. So it was perfectly okay for those people to think at scale, to think about this computing as an industrial problem that wasn't about kind of speaking to God knows, not at all about enabling individual variation. This was just about massive computational power put at the disposal of massive American corporations. So it's as, you know, in some sense, this is self-fulfilling, right? As the culture becomes more varied and more heterogeneous, um, the old order begins to die out. The one that says, hang yourself at the door and now act in a relatively kind of anonymous monolithic way to make products for an anonymous monolithic public 
you know, as that world changes, people have to make a different, engage in different kinds of creativity and create a, a new order of heterogeneity in the products and services they create. So I think um, this thing is driven to some extent by its own internal logic. And so again, this idea that we don't want to know about any of the complexity that, and it's still true, certainly, that there are some things the corporation doesn't want to know. And that's, you know, brings us into this kind of question of a identity politics where for certain purposes, in certain circumstances, people are so completely in the thrall of the construction of and the management of their identity that really it, that's a full-time job, right? And there's really no time to get anything else done in the world because you're managing this incredibly complicated and various selfhood, and that preoccupies you completely. It's sort of like the artist, right? Who's so, so totally enamored with the notion of themselves as artists that they never actually create any art. Identity has, has overtaken the possibility of certain kinds of accomplishment. And I think that's uh, potentially, you know, you can imagine that it's a place that the corporation ends up. And so preoccupied with kind of recognizing, acknowledging, expressing the complexity of the people within that it, you know, it ceases to be capable of doing whatever the corporation was designed to do. That kind of spirit of a kind of pragmatism or functionalism or a kind of well, let's roll up our sleeves and draw upon our heterogeneity only if and when it's useful for creative purposes. And for other purposes, let's revert to this very simple instruction set that we're going to call a lingua franca. And for these purposes, for practical purposes, we'll use this language and this commonality to get stuff done. And we'll call upon our complexity, our multiplicity, only as and when that serves as a creative resource a useful creative resource. A few points on that. Uh, one, before I dive into this, because this is super interesting, when we talk about, you know, this, like a simple bucket system, right? Okay, in, in situation X, we go to bucket lingua franca, in situation Y, we go into bucket heterogeneity. But <laughs> again, I'm, I'm super oversimplifying because, you know, that's... The, no, 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 uh, that's fine. That's great. Yeah. You mentioned something interesting, right? Uh, Post-World War II, we're looking at a lot of industrial projects. Who, who literally and figuratively are larger than the self. Right. And as we move into the 70s and 80s and 90s, things become more personal, personal computers, um, internet technology. Is there any way that we can say, you know, that the smaller the problem is that you're actually dealing with, the more the identity becomes the dominant thing that you're actually going to be focusing on because there is not this big dragon to slay such as you know putting a man on the moon right but we're now dealing in apps we're dealing with apps basically or likes yeah uh, tell me if this is a useful answer to the question you've just asked it's certainly the answer that comes to mind and it is that if what we're talking about now is not maybe what has changed is the sheer dynamism of the world in which we make things designs and movies and stories and products and when that's the case, to be a useful participant in a world that's boiling with, with change and with variation, with sudden shifts of attitude and outlook, it's really helpful if you contain a certain multiplicity of your own. 
Right, and it's, you sort of think about it in a kind of the language of art history about which I know appallingly little, but this notion of perspectival shifts, right, where, or we talk about postmodernism, in, in creating these perspectival kinds of shifts, and not privileging one point of view, but suddenly saying, no, this point of view, and now this point of view, if you contain this internal multiplicity, and you're capable of these sudden shifts of point of view, I think that makes you capable probably or more capable of the creativity you need to solve this kind of problem, which is, oh my God, what can this be? So we want to expand the imaginative envelope. And then where could we approach it this way or perhaps approach it that way? You see people kind of iterating like crazy as they look for the perfect expression of the idea as that manages the perfect fit with who we think the consumer is and what we think the market is. So that internal multiplicity, I think, gives us a fantastic kind of nimbleness or versatility that we can use to do the kinds of problem solving that matters more when the world is, as it were, constantly on the boil. Based on your answer, it strikes me like this is almost a, a new skill that people who are entering the workforce or, or who are in the current workforce should be taught and trained how to manage your multiplicity so that it is actually effective instead of counterproductive. Yeah, that's a great point. I never thought to make that point, but you're absolutely right. Is that something that, as, as an anthropologist, that, that you feel like, you know, is it teachable? I think it kind of, in my own modest way, I've started this series of culture camps. We taught one in New York in the summer, and we're teaching one in Toronto in a couple of weeks. And, and that's my attempt to say, here, spend this day with an anthropologist talking about Western cultures, and especially let's talk about the one of the things we say there are eight new structural properties to the individual, and that if you want to speak to this individual as a consumer, as a, as a market, you need to know that these new structural properties are in play. And that means knowing that people do have this multiplicity, and to speak to this multiplicity, you want to tap the multiplicity within. The only way you speak to their multiplicity is speaking from your multiplicity. So in my own modest, you know, I'm not saying this is the best course in the world or, or by any means the best way to solve this problem, but you can make this a teachable moment to use Obama type language. You can, you know, this is something to talk about. And it's interesting you can see people go, oh yeah, no, this is quite useful. And people get into, this is the part that's really heartening. People get in touch a couple of weeks after the course and say, this is fantastic. We are you, it sounds like I'm singing my own praises, forgive me. But they say, you know, this is really useful. This has made problem solving and, and creativity easier and richer than, than it used to be. So yes, I think it can be taught. You know, here's the problem with the university world for my purposes, and this won't endear me to academic anthropologists, but they, those academics, live in a world that's not all that dynamic and isn't all that changeable. And I've made my living as an anthropologist on the outside, as it were, as a, you know, giving advice to corporations. And I've had to change what I think I'm doing at least five or six times over the course of that career. The academics I went to school with as a graduate student, haven't changed at all in the 40 or 40 years that they have been uh, teaching university. And they haven't been asked to change, despite the fact that their students have changed at light speed, 
they haven't changed often they haven't changed how they teach or what they teach or um, they made no allowances for the raging change that's taken place like a you know terrible kind of windstorm has taken place around the academy and the academy is just you know snug and but worse than snug it's been kind of oblivious to all this change so in a sad sort of way it's made the the academy the places you point out could be the place where people could learn this approach. Um, it's almost the last place to go looking for a course of instruction that gets at it. Before we dive into some of the nuts and bolts of you know managing the multiplicity and being able to, let's say, shift between certain states, if I can call it that, as, as a member of a corporation, can I ask one thing? I mean, I can see myself as a HR you know, person, a director, global people director, officer, asking the question, okay, Grant, this is all great, this multiplicity thing, but how elastic is this? Like, it's not, that we cannot endlessly be multiplying multiplicities. Right. How do, we, how do we manage that? Yeah, I think there are sort of absolute, again, I sort of, it sounds like I'm blowing my own horn, but not to mention this would be wrong. I published a book, I don't know, let's say 10 years ago called Transformations, which is all about this kind of multiplicity theme. And one of my conclusions, right or wrong, was that there are kind of a relative limit to human plasticity, right? You, you know, you hear the spectacular cases, people who have suffered psychiatric illnesses as a result of which they now claim to be inhabited by, you know, 55 distinct personalities. And for all I know, they're not kidding. And that's their tragedy to be home to all that multiplicity. But I think most people top out at, you know, five or six different kinds of selfhoods. There's a real tension here. I did research for the book and I talked to one guy who said, oh yeah, no, I like to think about, we're talking about this issue of how many cells can you have and how do you communicate between them and can you have order, can you have coherence when you're multiple in this way? And he said, you know, sometimes I sort of think about myself as a cheap motel. There are a lot of people living here. We're not all of us on speaking terms. And frankly, the guy in 1C has, you know, causes concern for everybody else who lives in the motel. So he's kind of talking about himself as a collection of relative strangers who sometimes capture one another kind of passing in the parking lot. And you look at that, and I think we've all had a modest version of this experience, right, where we're caught in one version of ourselves, and then we discover ourselves in the presence of another version of ourselves. The most obvious example of this is when you're having lunch with friends from high school, and you suddenly see a table full of friends from college and feel yourself sort of caught between two quite different versions of yourself. Um, anyhow, so I think human beings are kind of pretty good at playing kind of a host to this multiplicity, surviving it, passing back and forth between it. The book transformation is just filled with case study after case study about people who are good at sliding back and forth. And, and one of the conclusions I come to is that really, you know, Victorians used to like to think about themselves as being clearly defined and very singular. And the person who was a good citizen and subject and father and and parent and and son and employee and employer all of those cells kind of stacked up quite beautifully because they were all variations on the same self 
And that was sort of the notion of the Victorian notion was that's kind of your job. That's the thing. And Trilling talks about this in a very useful way, right? He says the cultural objective of the 19th century was sincerity. That's what we asked of people was to be sincere and true to the role they had been assigned by society. And if you want to, you know, exaggerate recklessly, as, as I do in the book, you could say the 20th century, to some extent, is all about kind of blowing the, the cover off of that and just saying, we don't care about sincerity. We care about authenticity. This is exactly the language that Trilling uses, right? And you think about those beat poets driving their cars across the country and consuming boatloads of, of stimulants of one kind or another and, and writing like madmen, mad people. Um, all of that was them kind of trying to escape the conventions of culture and the sincerity that demanded of you and trying to get to new expressions of the self, even if those are one is different from the last. And building this multiplicity and living with this multiplicity and kind of celebrating this multiplicity. So I think as a culture, this has been a shared project. And I think human beings are, turns out, pretty good at being several several people and pretty good at managing the complexity that that creates. So, I mean, you know, clearly there's a limit and clearly there are moments when um, we can overdo it. And clearly for the organization, there is a limit. And sometimes we talk about corporations as at being at war with themselves because you have the one group who thinks X and another group that thinks Y. So uh, this is not just a formal or an academic problem, but I think it's a problem we will suffer more and we will solve more surely if we address it as you're doing with this podcast head on instead of just, you know, generally speaking, trying to ignore it in the hopes that it will go away. So if, if the 19th century was sincerity, 20th century was authenticity, what is the 21st century looking like? <laughs> That's a great question. I think it's multiplicity. I think multiplicity wins. Because when you say, as those beat poets did, uh, or hippies did, you know, really the whole point of the of, of self-exploration is to find out who you really are, right? That's that's the work of the the poetry and the drug taking and the and the hippie exploration, the search for self, as we called it. I don't know that anybody really cares about that very much anymore. That's certainly not the language. Uh, you hear people talking, I was thinking the other day about this notion of alienation is dead. And oh, that we used to prize this idea of alienation as a big deal for sociologists. And it was a terrible thing because your precious self was seen to be alienated from and by some part of the world. And I think it died as an academic industry. And it's something that people cared about when talking about movies or or any part of popular culture. And I think it's been replaced by that sense of, if you force me to choose between finding my essential singular self and giving me the opportunity to explore the world in pursuit of a multiplicity of selves, these days I will take the second over the first any time. It makes perfect sense, and, and it, it, I think I want to just, you know, maybe pick your brain on, on, on something else that I just, you know, it's part my, in my head. I know you've done, you know, work with Madison Avenue as well. And we can draw almost a parallel, right, between 19th century was about sincerity, and, and I'm sure if you look at the advertising at that point, it will reflect that. 
if we talk about authenticity, you know, 20th century, we all know, you know, burn back in the 60s, how advertising reflected that Nike, just do it, you know, be all it's all about an authentic experience, right? Are there clues that we can look for as corporations in wider culture yeah. to say, ah, you know, this is how people think and feel about this issue of multiplicity and, and we can maybe learn some yeah. of these things and incorporate it into our own practices? To totally. I mean, I think there are lots of cultural manifestations and I dug those out for the culture camp. One is an ad for, it's an ad that shows Ryan Reynolds as something like, 10 different people and it's two women are driving through a suburban neighborhood and they notice oh some guys are playing touch football and they look over and all the guys playing touch football are ryan reynolds by a trick of photography and in fact as they look over one ryan reynolds tackles another ryan reynolds and ryan reynolds says why so aggressive to himself the man who's just tackled himself and then we cut to the women come to a, are watching this play out and come suddenly, oh, it must be for a car company because the car stops itself. And that's a good thing because Ryan Reynolds is obviously a dog walker and, and he's now walking all of these dogs in front of the car. Oh, there's a beautiful Mustang ad from a couple of years ago in which the color of the Mustang changes according to the person looking at the Mustang. So the Mustang is driving through some American city. He sees a bicyclist in green. Uh, it sees a bicyclist in green. It changes into precisely the shade of green he's wearing. It sees a, a, a chef has come out of a restaurant uh, dressed in white and he has these uh, elaborate tattoos on bare forearms. The car becomes white and it takes on these um, tracings in the pattern of the tattoo. And then finally, it drives by a little girl who is, this is a, sort of a nice bit of trickery because by this time he's sort of going, got it, got it. The little girl looks at the car and we see her reflection in the car and she is secretly dressed in pink. The car responds to this and takes on a pink color. And then, and I'm not sure how they work this, the little girl turns into a, a kind of almost demonic character dressed in black with black. She's like a, a black angel. And the car does a similar change. So there's this weird kind of symbolic color conversation that takes place between this little girl and the car. So anyhow, uh, there's a lot of, yes, you can see why creative directors love the theme because they now have license to do all of this fantastic visual play. Again, this is the interesting thing for anthropological and I guess all design purposes. You can hear our culture kind of wrestling with this issue. And, and what are some other sources that, you know, we can look at and say, ah, you know, this issue is now becoming a dominant theme of the early 20th century besides advertising? I think it plays out a little bit in this notion of the gig economy, right? The generation coming up that's just come up, um, the one before Gen Z or Gen Z, as people are calling it, you know, the notion was the economy was more abundant. Um, you didn't have the opportunity to kind of get on a career conveyor belt that would take you into a first job and then 
to a succession of jobs and you move up in the organization that and and in your industry the failure of the economy to supply that natural kind of transformational cycle created a gig economy but in a weird way that gig economy worked beautifully for people who had these multiplicity of cells right so they were spinning they were a dj at night um they were designing uh shoes by day they were doing volunteer work in the late afternoon they had and they were driving uber uh in the morning they had all of these different things to piece together a career in the world and and often those would demand of them quite different ways of presenting themselves uh, in the world and and that was easier than it might have been for another generation because they were already in possession of a multiple self and getting better and better at kind of gliding back and forth between these these selfhoods part of this is kind of driven by the stacked up I mean, to the extent that people are finding a birth in the organization, often they're dealing with boomers and Gen X and Gen Y. Um, and then the millennial is kind of obliged to kind of slide back and forth. It's the millennial who plays the diplomatic presence because it's the millennial who has created the ability to to master several languages and several selfhoods. And so it's the millennial who can build the the lingua franca or the the kind of telephone exchange that allows these various parties to speak to one another. And then if we look at it from a corporation's point of view, you know, a lot of corporations are always actively doing a lot of things around employer branding. How do you attract talent? How do you ensure that people see you in, in, you know, as a favorable place to work? How does a corporation deal with the notion of multiplicity in how they present themselves to the outside world, whether it's consumers or, in this case, potential employees? No, that's a great question because the multiplicity that works for your employees doesn't necessarily work for your consumers. So this is a, you know, a diplomatic issue. Naturally, the good thing about the contemporary world is that our Social media makes it easy to target the message in a very particular way. So we're speaking narrowly to one group in a way that doesn't bleed over and confuse or antagonize another group. So I think there are new options here, but that's sort of just a, a technological cheat, isn't it? I've always felt like well, a lot of American brands, especially, I think English brands are different on this score, but a lot of American brands have this kind of... Uh, to use the language for the language of the '90s, this kind of cheesy good human, good humor, where we're the same thing for everybody, and that's you know a big kind of boisterous, kind of uh, obvious kind of brand messaging, at a time when the world wants a new subtlety in brand building and a new playfulness in the language of the brand, and so I was talking to somebody who said, "Oh yeah, no." brands they're so painful it's like that guy at the party who's had too much to drink and he's sort of staring at everybody and you just wish he would go home but he's not going home he's just getting louder and louder and louder that's what branding is in my world and i want somebody who has this kind of tact or or touch as they say in tennis right is a delicacy in their ability to craft a message and and to send a message so I think English branding has always been much more subtle and American branding is kind of having to learn. The thing I say to clients is 
people are prepared to, to give you space. This is the old monolithic logic of capitalism and, and branding. The one that prevailed after World War II was you have to say the same thing to everybody all the time. Nobody's interested in that, right? Not only is that bad marketing, it's entropic marketing. It's negative marketing. People take points off if that's the way you insist on presenting yourself in the world. And so you've got new latitude to work with when you're building a brand, when you're crafting a message. And it's a good thing too, because your consumers are so much more sophisticated when it comes to receiving messages that they really don't want to hear from you in the old modality. So, and that's tough to, you know, people think, oh damn, you know, it's taken the corporation a hundred years to build this brand. I could screw it up in a single summer. And there've been some cataclysmic moments when companies have really, you know, Pepsi put the brand at risk with some really tone deaf uh, recent work, and they were trying to be current with contemporary culture and just managed really to put their foot in it and almost had to do a kind of mea culpa to apologize. But uh, I think there is latitude there. I think, you know, we've had this notion from the Clue Train Manifesto that branding really is a conversation. I, I think that metaphor is wrong. But one thing about it is correct, and that is this is a looser exchange of information and you're, you're entitled to make mistakes and you can make those mistakes and get back on your horse and carry on unless you've done something astonishingly stupid or ill-considered or, or antagonistic or or violent uh, people will go yeah i know that happens that happens to me in my attempts to say intelligent interestingly playful things i fall on my face my friends go you're an idiot get up carry on if the brand is really trying, is making an effort, then people go, we forgive you because that's vastly better than you being that guy at the party who won't shut up. So if, again, if I put myself in the HR director's shoes and I bring an anthropologist such as yourself to the table, would then at the opposite side of the table have to sit somebody from the legal department because you're talking about introducing complexity ambiguity potential for failure whereas the the compliance and legal part of the corporation is all about mitigation be bland don't say anything that could be construed in a particular way so how do you marry those tensions yeah no it's a great question i was just talking to people in the investment world and they are getting more and more cunning in their ability to read what's happening in your corporate culture. And they're deciding whether they want to bet on you, invest in you, buy your stock accordingly, right? And, and so if what you do in what's called the earnings call or the annual report is roll out all the usual language that promises the sun and the stars and goodness and kindness and lots of profit at the end of the year, people just go, you know, that's not very useful, thank you very much. We will now penalize you for, in fact, we began to talk about the possibility that there ought to be a cliche penalty. When you look at that annual report or the earnings call and people are just speaking in the most obvious kind of and typical kind of language, then you say, no, no, these people are either too dim to understand what they're doing here, or they're so much on autopilot that they can't help themselves. In either case, this suggests managerial insufficiency that should warn me off investing in them. 
that's the moment when, and I, you know, I was contemplating the possibility that a CEO could find himself answering difficult questions on this call about how he or she constructs the corporate culture, putting the phone down and saying, what the F just happened to me? I got beaten up uh, in public because nobody told me I had to have more sophisticated answers here. What are the sophisticated answers I can be forthcoming with in this situation. Fix this for me, please. This is when heads begin to roll in the C-suite, right? When somebody, it puts the CEO in a situation where she finds herself embarrassed. In fact, the woman who is the COO, I guess, of Facebook was recently put in a position of, she was suddenly, the Sandberg suddenly embarrassed because somebody didn't prepare her for what was coming. Anyhow, so the corporation, I think, is beginning to understand that it has to come up with more nuanced answers, not just because it should be thinking in a more nuanced way. God, I mean, this is the really frustrating point, isn't it, is that some people are, are still acting like the point of the corporate exercise is to make hammers because hammers are manifestly useful. And all you have to do is, is tell the world we make hammers and they will buy hammers. This kind of capitalistic literalism is finally beginning to shift as everyone gets that it's a vastly more complicated proposition. So sometimes people are doing the, the right things for the, for the right reason. Sometimes they're doing the right thing for the necessary reason, which is unless you're capable of speaking in a more nuanced voice, you just look like an idiot. You raised an interesting point that I want to piggyback on, but I also want to just get your thoughts on, you know, on the fact that is then Elon Musk going on the Joe Rogan podcast and, and smoking marijuana, a, a, an example, perhaps a extreme example of a, of a nuanced, sophisticated CEO who has multiplicity yeah. built in, baked in, into his organization? He's just such an interesting guy because he is, for American purposes, we see him as the new Edison, right? As a guy so um, smart and in possession of such extraordinary corporate resources that he can take on the biggest questions and contemplate the biggest answers. So unlike poor Zuckerman, uh, Zuckerberg, I should say, who's just you know done a disastrous job of managing the Facebook debacle, Jeff Bezos isn't much better, but this guy, you know, people cut him a lot of slack, which is a good thing because he's needed all of that slack. And he was recently did an interview with Quartz, I think, and you, you literally, he appeared to be trying to crawl out of his clothing. He was just, you felt like he was going to start uh, throwing rivets. Um, he was under so much physical pressure and, and he just said, and to his great credit, this is the example of the new the new transparency. He just said, you know, I'm working 22 hours a day. Nobody should work like this. This is not good for me. It's not good for Tesla. So that candor, I think, is a good thing. But yeah, I think people cut this guy an enormous amount of slack because he is he is so candid about his ambitions on the one side. And uh, the stress factor to which the guy has subjected himself, you know, really is a kind of like one of the studies I'm sure they do at Tesla, how, how much stress can this I-beam take before it breaks down? It's almost like he's made himself an industrial experiment. So he's a good example, I think. Whereas, you know, you look at some of the other players and they are anything but uh, sympathetic characters because they seem to be kind of um, overwhelmed. You know, the grandiosity, this notion of we must go to Mars, it's like 
you know, I think a lot of people just think, well, maybe you could spend some of your fortune fixing the planet before we abandon it for another one. But no, uh, they want to be the ones who get there first, which is not a, just feels like grandiosity to me. But what do I know? And then I just want to piggyback on or bring back something else, because it seems to me that, you know, we started out talking about a, a lingua franca to to have all these disparate facets of, of humans and groups within companies be able to, to communicate with each other with a shared understanding. But now we're also talking about, you know, an increase in, in sophistication of communication and that even, you know, investment companies are, are looking at ways to analyze that and make investment decisions, uh, whether or not somebody's culture is, is sophisticated or not and how that, you know, plays out financially. Mm. But that seems to be a, a, a direct contradiction to me, or at least a, a head on collision, if not a contradiction, because on the one end, we're trying to create a common language. And on the other end, we're saying that let's build, you know, sophistication and complexity into this common language. Right. I think maybe the the happy medium here or the solution, the rough and ready solution here is how fast can you get on the same page to use that language, right? How quickly can two parties sit down and find one another in a conversation? And I was recently at a dinner staged by this guy who, I won't use his name, but he, he made a lot of money in Silicon Valley, and now he amuses himself by staging these dinners. And these dinners are very high-pressure kind of performance events where he looks at you and asks you to tell the table what you do in a very brief way. And then you get into conversations. He deliberately puts these uh, dinners together as if they were arcs. There's one of everyone. And then you will have a conversation with somebody and you'll see how fast you can get from, oh, so you do that. And they're going, so you do that. And how quickly you can get to common ground. And on that common ground, then have an interesting conversation. What's interesting is there's none of the old, old boys bullshit, kind of like, oh, you went to school there and oh, you know, so-and-so and comparing credentials and, you know, doing the secret handshake bullshit. It's all, how smart are you? How fast can you find me as I struggle to find you? And we can build this platform uh, of shared assumptions and then have a conversation that's interesting and useful and, and, and productive. That stuff, you know, it's sometimes more than I can manage given my resources. But when it works well, it's like, wow, it just people in, the, in very short order get to a productive conversation. And I think that ability and that takes like an order of of intellectual mobility that I didn't used to have before. Some would argue I don't have it now, but I didn't used to be able to kind of mobilize myself when you give me this problem to solve and this person who's strange and speaks from another, another profession altogether, another experience, another part of the country, I would just kind of look at them and go, so uh, do you know so-and-so or where, where did you go to yeah, I really just couldn't manage this. And I've had to learn to kind of do it. And I think we've all learned to kind of do it. And that's the kind of instant lingua franca, kind of like build it in real time, even as you're speaking, 
it's like building the, the vessel in which you travel in order to travel. That's a pretty interesting kind of undertaking. And that we can do it at all, I think, speaks well of us and how much we're changing. And I think, that, but among other things, it'd be fun to talk about uh, in more detail and be offline. Some of this ability to build a platform conversation, have a conversation, must come from our multiplicity. It's precisely because we are several people with a diversity of experience that we can find the other person in this conversation. Now, uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here and, you know, and, and say, say some things that I haven't really thought through because it just popped in my head. But bear with me here, Grant. You know, give me a little bit of latitude as, as I display a little bit of multiplicity of my own. It seems like what you now, you know, characterized is, is perhaps, you know, if I can summarize it as a, as a U.S. model, right? A, an American model, you know, finding common ground and, exp- you know, that way we can build towards something. On the other hand, when I look at a company such as, because you mentioned, you know, the investment industry, when I look at a company such as Bridgewater, uh, founded by Ray, Ray Dalio, they seem to almost employ if I can call it the France model, you know, France is famous for refusing to speak English. Even though we know it, we refuse to speak English. They seem to say, Bridgewater seems to say, we have a very distinct, distinct culture, distinct language, and we are actively not trying to find common ground. We are actively trying to repel people who are not attracted to us. Instead of us trying to find you, you either come to us. Is that a different way of, of trying to find, you know, people that are speaking your languages to say, look, you know, we're going to be a stubborn minority and we're not going to change and you're going to have to adapt to us. I'm just having this conversation with an investment guy literally last night about this issue. And he's just joined a firm that is, I said, so how do you guys deal with the question of culture? And he said, well, they think a little bit about corporate culture, but not very hard. And they don't think about broader culture at all. And he just said, they dismiss it. They just say, you know, we can solve problems without it. So why would we bother? To which the answer is, well, this is, you know, it's sometimes this is the answer to the problem on the table. And when you don't treat it, it's the reason it's your variance, right? It's the reason you're wrong. You're right only 80% of the time. Right. The defense for their model, and I guess it's the Bridgewater defense as well, is that, hey, look how well we're doing. If this were a problem, we couldn't do this. Uh, we couldn't be so successful. To which the answer is, and this is a very kind of like seeking alpha, you know, uh, this speaks to the very heart of the investment world, is that you can always do better. You can always collapse the failure rate or the the imperfections of your investment or the the tiny insufficiencies of your calculation end up being worth millions of dollars or pounds uh, over the years. Um, So we're not just talking about do you flourish, do you not? We're talking about absolutely maximizing your investment and your return on investment and the profit you bring to your clients and the greatness in which you enshrine yourself as a big investment house. These are all major issues for them. So I think there is a way of saying you can exclude this and you can do very well, but when you do badly, you embarrass yourself and you could, you could get way closer to perfection if you were to take this culture, generally speaking, more seriously and multiplicity as a particular piece of that too. Thinking out loud here, it seems that, you know, from a corporation that's been around for, let's say, 100 years, right, and you make carbonated drinks, 
the notion of being able to look at a, a Bridgewater and say, well, you know, there is this, instead of multiplicity, we have singularity, we have stability. It seems a lot more inviting to say, you know, let's, let's do that than going on this ambiguous journey of figuring out how to not only embrace multiplicity, but make it actually common enough so that everybody kind of gets it. No, absolutely. And I respect the people who make this argument. It's intellectually, it's a reputable thing to do. It's a necessary alternative to explore. Here's the thing that really scares me about it. What we know about business these days is that if you look at somewhere on my blog, I, I have recited the numbers here. Almost all the winners now fail was the title of the piece, I think. And I went through and I looked at the top 10 corporations in the U.S. for kind of the 1980s. And I looked to see how many of them were still top 10 20 years later. And only sort of like something like 60% of them had fallen from the top 10 and had fallen very steeply indeed. So when you live in a world, I mean, you think about how Talib defines what a black swan is, Right. He says the black swan is something you can't anticipate. No amount of strategy and, and thinking and problem solving and paradigm building is going to warn you of this because this black swan is invisible. You can't see it because you can't think it. That may exaggerate for some purposes, right? But we know we live in a world filled with so much dynamism and disruption that in point of fact, there's a good chance that somebody will rip your business model out from under you and you will suffer one of these precipitous declines. And by the time you come to and you realize what's happened to you, it's usually too late to take advantage of the advantages you have as the former top 10 incumbent. It's really too late to get back in the game. So the way you avoid black swans, the way you see the invisible, I think, is by changing your perspectives, looking at things and going, what if I change this deep assumption? How about if I change this deep assumption? What if I change this deep assumption? I was in a boardroom, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, and somebody said, what if sugar is the new tobacco? And everyone just laughed, like, yeah, that's going to happen. Of course, that's exactly what happened, right? Sugar is now the enemy, and the corporations that scorned this possibility, that insisted that this was ridiculous were in fact staring in the face of a black swan and they couldn't see it for what it was so they couldn't adapt the ability to shift perspectives to spot unlikely futures is precisely i think your chances of doing that go up when you are a multiple creature because some part of your life is spent going from one set of assumptions to another set of assumptions you're accustomed to this idea that what feels like an absolutely clear and continuous view of the future, that could be wrong. Because if you look at it from this other point of view, you know, it's entirely possible that uh, this could be an arbitrary arrangement. And that's got to be the single foundational truth of anthropology, is that culture presents you what feels like an in inevitable view of the world. But in point of fact, it's an arbitrary convention that exists as a compelling understanding of the world because we have accepted as such and built it as a consensus that we share and insist upon, you know, day to day in every conversation. So again, uh, it's another just way I think of saying multiplicity is a very useful device for, for surviving a world that is now fantastically disrupted disrupted and disruptive and will only get more so. There's no reason why the world is ever going to get simpler or more continuous. 
So um, my sense is anybody who says we can just shut out the noise that comes to you when you're a student of culture, a student of multiplicity is, is really just asking for trouble. Then the question becomes, you know, how do I bring in the type of talent and skill sets as an HR team that can tell me noise from signal? Right. Because HR is probably not equipped to deal with these questions of building, you know, common languages and dealing with multiplicity from an HR function. I think the individuals who work in HR, as you said, you know, the human beings probably could you know, I haven't already been doing it because everybody has multiple identities that they have. But the moment, again, they put on this HR hat, it's about, okay, we need to have some kind of order and consistency about it. I mean, I, I wish the humanities were not so preoccupied with postmodernist anxieties about whether and what you can say to be true of the world and and preoccupied with a kind of what we could call an identity uh, scholarship where it's, you know, discourse is really about the thinker or the writer much more than it is about the thing thought or, or written about. The humanities ought to be the place that produces people with fabulously good skills, um, with a tremendous kind of intellectual mobility where they can shift from, from one perspective to another. But, you know, they're just not at the moment or, or they're not everywhere productive of these talents. So it's not clear how you get them. I'm sure there has to be, you know, HR, I guess, loves to have, have tests that help identify the talents that people bring or would bring to the job. And surely there's, that's one thing we should do, actually, is, is think about what a diagnostic like this would look like that HR could use to spot people who have a gift for multiplicity uh, and those who don't. When we look at you know, figuring out who has it and who doesn't have it. What are some companies that you think are actually doing it fairly well, even from a consumer branding point of view, and even maybe from an internal company culture point of view in managing this multiplicity and even having some rudimentary lingua francas? That's a good question. You know, who's kind of having to grapple with this problem because what they do in the world is build furnish and design office spaces is Herman Miller. They're the, you know, they make furniture and they make office complexes. Apparently WeWork is doing some interesting work here and they've hired some social scientists and they're really thinking about what the office is over and above the, the kind of the physical plant. But I don't, I don't know the details there. I have to say in my failing, I'm sure there's just not like a, a whole set of companies that leap to mind. I, I would love to hear of them if we can think of candidates. I would love to hear about them. Well, to me, it's easier to find, you know, anti-candidates. Um, yeah, well said. You know, you, you're looking at, you know, Nike who's always, you know, who's always, well, had the perception of having a very strong cultures in recent times dealt with, you know, internal and, you know, culture, you know, scandals. You look at Google and, and recently they're, you know, a, a huge section of employees threatening to walk out of the company because of some internal revelations. You look at Facebook, all these companies that are being held up as being very innovative in, in a lot of ways seem to not be able to grasp the cultural elements. So yeah. it's, it's tragic. And especially because every almost everybody in the organization, I mean, just to risk of 
kind of too general generalization, the younger you are, the smarter you are on these issues. And maybe that's the problem. Rather, that's the solution is that as uh, people mature and rise into management positions, some of these issues will go away just because people have a native understanding of of the issues and, and a head start in solving them. So then I have two final questions because I don't want to run over your time as well. Um, first question is, are we then making a mountain out of a mouse hole? Is that the right saying in terms of, you know, oh, we did this need for finding a common language because things might just work itself out through demographic changes? Right. I think it's, yeah, too long for us to wait. And I have to, I'll just, Another story here is I talked to a guy who makes his living in mergers and acquisitions, and the conversation took a slightly antagonistic turn where I said, you know, I read somewhere that 60% of mergers and acquisitions fail. How do you live with a failure rate like that? And he said, listen, once we push an M&A off the lot, it's not our problem what happens to it. Comparing himself to a used car salesman who's selling a car without an engine that it has been this bad for this long is just one of those irrationalities that the system will at some point wake up and go, oh, for crying out loud, this is, and it's when, and you can see it happening. I literally, this last, yesterday night and over the last couple of months, I've had a ringside seat at the world of investment. And they're the people in some important sense call the shots, right? If you're a corporation, you need to care what the street the investment community thinks about you. And if they've determined that you suffer these liabilities and they begin to penalize you for the degree to which you suffer the liability, that's the moment people start to spend real money fixing the problem. And, and that's the moment that a lot of people who are now you know, living in relative obscurity will rise to, uh, to the glory of the C-suite. Perhaps I have also a fascination with the investment world because they always are looking for alpha, right? They're always seeking alpha, oftentimes failing to, to do so. But is, is that a hint as to what could be a, a first step for any company trying to find a, a common language is to somehow figure out what the cost of not having it is? Because these people, you know, the bankers, just they make everything about numbers in the end, right? It's all about dollars and cents. Absolutely. And for all we know, Goldman Sachs or you know, one of those big houses who take on big problems, that they've run the numbers here and they've quietly let their clients know it's not yet public, but it someday will be. I, I don't know that that's happened, but it's precisely the kind of thing that uh, Goldman Sachs, I Goldman Sachs is probably not very good at culture or corporate culture or multiplicity or lingua franca. So until they put their house in order, they can't put other houses in order, but someday they will. And this will be another kind of thing that, that creates tremendous uh, sudden acceleration of problem solving, right? People will go, oh, okay, McKinsey takes this problem seriously, so we do too, and they suggested solutions. So we're embracing those, and we'll spend about any amount of money to get right on this because the street is now watching us. I can see that as a scenario that could happen qu- quite quickly. And, and final, final question for all our readers. If they just want to get like a, some kind of a baseline understanding of multiplicity and, and its effects, you mentioned some of your own writing. Would you just want to repeat that and any other, you know, interesting sources of information that you think could be worth checking up on? I'm sure, yeah. If you don't mind, I will recommend my, my own book, chiefly because I just stuffed it with 
with references. So there are like almost thousands of footnotes in a book called Transformations, and I published it with Indiana University Press. Uh, it was like several years ago, but that's got a detailed kind of treatment of multiplicity in contemporary culture, tons of examples from popular culture, and then just stacks of, of academic literature that address the issue one way or another. There's one guy in particular I loved and and drew from, and I'm just looking now at my bookshelf for his... Damn, I don't see it. But you'll find it in Transformations. Anyone, anybody who's interested will, will see it there. And if they want to have a practical understanding of how to you know, deal with and apply multiplicity, you mentioned a culture camp coming up in Toronto. What can you tell us about that in terms of or any other culture camps in 2019? So there'll be one in Toronto in January and then another one in New York in June. Yeah, and certainly we'll do one in London one of these days, uh, maybe in the fall of 19. So that may happen, but uh, that, and those are really fun. <laughs> they are really fun to do. Um, or if people just follow me on Twitter, that's the simple way of doing it. I'm Grant27 on Twitter. And otherwise they can go to culturebuy.com as well and find out more about any dates. Right. They could also go to culture.camp and they'll see all the past and present future camps. Well, you know, I want to say that this podcast has, has scratched the itch of lingua franca, but I think it's only deepened it. So I, I, I'm, I'm going to tentatively say that I'm, I might, again, invite you for a third round, uh, you know, to have... I would love to. The questions are uh, extraordinarily um, intelligent and stimulating, so it's been a real pleasure to chat. I, I thank you for the opportunity. No, thank you as well again. Um, and I'm going to say to all our listeners, if you want to know more, follow Grant on Twitter, uh, go to his website, get the books, because it's been very enlightening for me, and I'm sure it will be for everybody else, because this is an issue that we will have to deal with as corporations, because it's happening in wider culture, so we might as well deal with it head on. Thank you again, Grant, for joining the Slightly Evil podcast. My pleasure, Petro. Thank you so much. It's been great. Thank you. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks. You too. Thanks again. This podcast is brought to you by Gap Jumpers on a mission to eradicate workplace bias by 2025. If you fear that unconscious bias is harming your company, Gap Jumpers can help you design a program to eradicate it. To learn more, visit gapjumpers.me. If you've enjoyed listening to this conversation, do please share this podcast. Thank you for listening to the Slightly Evil Podcast.